This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Chad O. Jackson. So he is a professional craftsman and business owner in Dallas, Texas. And also he is a featured cast member of the documentary Uncle Tom and the recently released sequel, Uncle Tom 2. And I believe he was a co-producer on Uncle Tom 2. So I'm going to read the description of the film. We had Justin Malone on, so he was the director of the film. And now we've got Chad O. Jackson, who's one of the featured people from the film. But let me read the description of the film back to you. Uncle Tom 2 is an odyssey depicting the gradual demoralization of America through Marxist infiltration of its institutions. The film explores how this deceptive ideology has torn apart the fabric of society while using black America as its number one tool for its destruction. From executive producer Larry Elder and director Justin Malone comes a continuation of their highly acclaimed film, Uncle Tom from 2020. Uncle Tom 2 will take the audience deeper into black America's often eradicated history of honorable men, entrepreneurship, prosperity, faith, and patriotism to its current perceived state of anger, discontent, discontent, and victimhood. Uncle Tom 2 unveils the Marxist strategy of creating false racial tension between Americans with its ultimate goal of obtaining power, destroying capitalism, and replacing God with government. So again, as I talked about on the previous episode, I went to the world premiere of this in Dallas on August the 26th. So one of the very first people that I met when I went there was Chad O. Jackson. I told you guys before I was I was doing an interview down there, but then I went to the theater early, walked in there, and at the coffee shop was you know Colonel Allen West and Brandon Tatum and Jesse Lee Peterson. And then about 10 minutes later, Chad O. Jackson walks through. So I got to speak with him a little bit. You know, he was very cordial, very nice and polite and just such a smart guy, such an impressive guy to be a businessman, but also be to be so well read on all these different subject matters. And again, shout out to Michelle over there at Uncle Tom. She she kind of got me uh, over there and got me scheduled up with everybody to show up and just the timing worked out well where I got to interact with a lot of those folks for a lot of time. But in today's interview, you're going to hear a lot of the same questions that I gave to Justin, uh, some of the same setups, but it's interesting to get it from Chad's perspective because he wasn't the one that started this project. He wasn't there at the very beginning. He was just, you know, reached out to and kind of became a part of the project. So we're going to talk about, you know, kind of what got him into it, how he was able to get to the project, but then we're going to get some perspectives from him about, okay, why bring in the Christian, a Judeo-Christian ethic aspect of this film, which wasn't too terribly apparent in the first film. You know, when we get into some of the additions like Vody Bauckham being in this one, kind of what that looked like. Like, but also just the overall concept of blackness, right? So capital B blackness, what that means in current culture and, and how that ideology is pervasive in black communities. We even talk a little bit about the reason why people say things like black community or Asian community or gay community, that that's coming straight out of a Marxist playbook. And so we get into that. We talk a little bit about that. We talk about a guy that you should know named Eric Mann. We talk about setting the record straight on the Tulsa race riots, which have now been rebranded the Tulsa race massacre. We also spend some time talking about manhood, talking about the church. And, you know, talking about education and how our kids are being indoctrinated if they're in the public government schools and all these different things. And then we had a a very good discussion about what the future of the Uncle Tom franchise is going to look like. So you're not going to want to miss that. But before we get there, I want to remind you about the Upper Room and the King's Council. So this is big time attention to business owners, entrepreneurs, and the soon to be entrepreneurs that are listening to this podcast right now, the Upper Room and the King's Council. So the mission of these two organizations is to create wealth and provision for the purpose of establishing God's covenant on earth. So what these organizations do, what these two groups do is they equip entrepreneurs with tools, systems, and frameworks necessary to discover, develop, and deploy their God-given vision into the marketplace. So specifically, I want to talk about 
about the upper room mastermind. So if you're an existing entrepreneur or a business owner, or you're about to launch in, or you're trying to ramp up and you're looking for a tribe of like-minded, bold kingdom leaders, eager to engage in the battle of business, then the upper room is 100% for you guys. So I don't want you to miss out on this. So what they do is they host virtual and in-person events every month, and they focus on business strategies to increase sustainable revenue for your business while providing ongoing accountability. So this is a very customizable thing to your business. Cause obviously if you're running, you know, a uh, flower shop versus running an insurance business, it's going to be a little bit different what your needs are. So I've actually spoken to their group before. So I have some behind the scenes looks as kind of the, some of the things that they're doing. And if you want more information on this, go to episode 355 of this podcast. That was my interview with Riley Meek. He is the founder of the King's Council in the upper room. So it's 355 Riley Meek at the King Entrepreneurship and Money. And he made an offer on that episode that I thought was awesome. So if you guys will text upper room to 727-472-3860, you will get an application to schedule a one-on-one with Riley Meek, who is the founder of the upper room and the King's council. So again, that's upper room. So that's U P P E R R O O M to 727-472-3860 to schedule your one-on-one with the founder of the upper room and the King's council, Riley Meek guys, you will not want to miss this. It's going to be great value to you. Now, guys, I'm not going to keep Chad o. Jackson from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Chad o. Jackson, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, man, thank you for having me. Now, no one else heard this because I wasn't recording yet, but you just gave me one of my favorite things as a podcaster. You told me off air, you said, yeah, we can go as long as you want. So hopefully you're okay with that because you just signed up for a lot of follow-up questions. But we do need to get a little bit of an introduction on you because I just did an intro about you. But I always like to hear from the horse's mouth. Give us an idea of kind of what you do professionally, because if people were to watch the film, obviously they could see that you like to work with your hands and and you're a business owner, but here you are in two different films and we'll spend a lot of time getting into those films. But I guess, what do you do now that you're all grown up? Well, I mean, so I guess to start, I, when I was in high school, I took a really big interest in film. where, Where I lived in Mansfield, we had a career school. It was kind of like uh, where you where high schoolers went for electives. And one of those classes that you could take is media technology. And so I got interested in film. I wanted to do it. Um, and whenever we graduated high school, uh, I just didn't have the money to go to college. And so what I did was I went into the plumbing trade and I started off as an apprentice. I was able to um, become a journeyman plumber over time. And then ultimately I became a master plumber. So I mastered the trade. So I'm a master craftsman. There you um, go. Yeah. So around about the age of 25 or 26, I decided to start my own plumbing company. And in a roundabout way, uh, Justin Malone, uh, who's a filmmaker here in Dallas, uh, learned about me. He learned I was involved in Dallas, the Dallas Republican Party at the time. And he told me one day, like, I'm, I'm making this movie about black conservatives. I'm wondering if you're interested. And at the time, I didn't know who he was or what this was really about. For all I knew, it could have been this kind of exploitation type situation. So I kind of put it off for about a week or two. And then finally, I called him back. I was like, yeah, I'll sit down for your interview. So um, that was kind of my introduction into the film industry. And so uh, to answer your question, I'm I'm really a jack of all trades. Uh, I'm a natural researcher. If something Mm -hmm. interests me, I'm going to hit the books. I'm I'm going to obsess over that thing and and look into it and so it was just a natural fit uh for the making of uncle tom 2 
where most of my contribution to the film was researching. So, um, well, so yeah, that's a brief, brief introduction of who I am. When you, even in the cover, I still have my, mine in the plastic because I want to keep it. There's you on the cover, and so you got all the books and all the research above, and then below it shows that you actually get after it. You got mud-covered shoes and jeans and whatnot. And, but let, yeah. let's talk a little bit about Uncle Tom 1, and we'll spend most of our time today talking about the sequel. But you mentioned Justin approached you, that he was doing this, uh, that you were a little bit hesitant. Maybe it was exploitative. But when did you kind of feel like, like when did you really know that, hey, this is not only going to be a valuable project, but this is something that I want to do because the interesting thing about you is like you're, you can be interested in film and never want to be in a film, right? Mm -hmm. Like have no desire to be in front of the camera. And then you have the other side of the spectrum where you have people that desperately want to be the feature of the film and want to be on camera and all that. So you're certainly not on that, that side, but I mean, you could have fell a, a lot of places along the way as like, Hey, maybe I'll just help him with research or maybe I'll just support him when it comes out by buying a ticket. But you mm-hmm. went full in and you were basically the, the main cast member of the first film and into the second film. So walk me through that. Yeah. And I didn't even know I was going to be like the main character, if you will, of the film until maybe a month or two before it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever it was actually writer Ansel, who is a huge player in both part one and part two. Um, like myself, he's a natural uh, researcher. We're a lot alike than we are different other than skin pigmentation. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so so they reached out to me. Um, I finally agreed to sit down for an interview. Uh, Justin and Ryder, they came to my shop uh, there in, in Dallas, Texas. We um, sat down for the interview. The interview was was really, it went really well. It was natural. I was comfortable. The questions that they were asking were really good questions. Um, at that time, there was a lot that I, I did research and was applying to my my own life. And so I was just able to kind of give these answers that were really organic and really natural. Um, they went away. Apparently, while they were gone, um, I wasn't really thinking about it. I was just thinking about the work that was in front of me uh, in that space of time between when they interviewed me first and when the movie came out, I was able to significantly grow my company because that's where my focus was. I wasn't really thinking about being in a movie or anything like that because I wasn't sure what would come of it. But apparently they were able to meet Larry Elder and score all these other interviews and all these different things to where by the time they circled back to me, um, it was this, it, this, it was this project that expanded quite significantly. And I was like, wow, I'm a part of that. I didn't know to what extent I was a part of it because at, the, at that time I still didn't see the movie whenever they circled back to me. Um, but they said, look, we just want to do a follow-up interview. We want to follow you around with the camera on some of your job sites, so on and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, by the time it came out, I was just blown away by what I saw. Uh, Uncle Tom, in my opinion, is easily top five documentaries of all time, the first one. Uh, but even, even that, even though I can say that and believe it, not just because I'm in it, um, I still think it's very milk toast compared to what the part two is. Part two is a deeper, smarter, uh, braver film. And it doesn't really, there, there's no, there's no sacred cows in part two. And that's, that's, that's what I wanted to bring to the table as somebody who was working behind the scenes for this one. I didn't want to say the same things that everybody says, both on the right and the left. I wanted to take the audience deeper. And so that's that's really what my heart was in, in, inside of this project. 
Well, I think for me, that's why I was maybe more attracted to the second film. Cause I, I saw the first film a couple of years ago when it came out. And then the second film, like I'm, I'm more attracted to the things that are a little bit more extreme. It just kind of goes with my personality. And yes, you were part of a cadre of a, an amazing cast on the first film. So again, you mentioned Larry Elder, but then Brandon Tatum, Colonel Allen West, Herman Cain, Candace Owens, Robert Woodson, Carol Swain, Jesse Lee Peterson, and there were others. And a lot of those people were on board for the second film. But before we get into the second film, Chad, I want to go back to something that is probably going to be breaking news to you. Um, you can't just start a business and be successful in America as a black man. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you did something. I don't know if the FBI just thought you had a really white sounding name, you know, Chad Jackson or something like that, because like, I, again, I've been told by very reliable sources that that's not possible. Can you help me understand how that happened? Yeah, it's definitely a mentality. Um, I didn't know that either. Uh, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because through my research for Uncle Tom 2, there's this book that I read by a man named Carter G. Woodson. Uh, he wrote it in 1933. It's called The Miseducation of the Negro. And he acknowledges then, this was a black man writing it, by the way, he acknowledges then that the upper echelon of Negroes who are going to college at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and other, you know, other prestigious colleges, uh, they are being educated by individuals who have not spent uh, an hour or a second in business. And what they're being told, what these upper echelon of Negroes are being told, is that it's impossible for the Negro to toil upward in America. Hmm. And, and Carter G. Woodson says that these students are being, uh, they're, they're flooding the ranks of what is commonly known as communists. So he, he says that they're learning communism at these Ivy League schools. And he says something that I think is very important. He says that they are being told that it's impossible to start a business if you're a black man in America, but the Negroes in the South, the uneducated Negroes in the South are actually at work doing the thing that right. these upper echelon Negroes are being told is impossible. Mm. And for me, it's like, it, it just makes so much sense because it's like, how, how, how is it that you're believing what your professors are saying mm -hmm. when you're, when you're, when your father and grandfather defies exactly what you're, what your uh, professors are saying. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be at that college in the first place. Right. Right. So there is this kind of elitism where you believe that, oh, yes, my dad did start his business and that's why I get to go to Princeton. However, uh, my dad has what it takes, whereas these other, you know, uh, former slaves don't have what it takes. And that's why I get to go here. And that's why they don't get to go here. So you kind of feel as though you're kind of a deity or you're a god. And that's why we get to go to these colleges and you don't. But if you accept me as your leader, if you adopt me as your leader, I can I can make life easier for everybody. And that's where the socialism communism piece come into play. It gets very complex and deep. But yeah, to, to your point or to your question about, you know, uh, this idea of if you're black, you can't start a business that's defied by black people every day. Mm -hmm. But ironically, many of those black people who are starting businesses uh, they too believe that it's difficult to start a business in America if you're black, and they believe that they are the exception to the rule. And so that kind of speaks to the complexity and how deep uh, uh, this indoctrination goes. Well, I don't want to go too deep because I've got some, hopefully some good questions later that will dig way farther into that because, you yeah. know, I talked to, I talked to Justin before I talked to you and he, he, 
you know, he kept telling me, he's like, you wanted to go even deeper with the film and go even more extreme. And, you know, that would have been very attractive to a guy like me that is, Uh that is attracted to those things, but let's, let's start easy with, with uncle Tom too. So you're doing a sequel. Um, and I want you to kind of go into what that documentary covers, but the very first lines of the film are spoken by you. And I want to read your quote from the very beginning here. My hope is that this will help to break the spell, the spell that so many people are under that keeps them angry makes them bitter, blinds them from the truth, but realize that they are being deceived and they've been lied to, that we've all been lied to our entire life. My hope is that people will begin to wake up. So obviously that is kind of the the battle cry for this film. So I guess the question is wake up from what? Uh, wake up from your stupor, really uh, a stupor that you have that, that not only black folks, but Americans at large, if you were born between, I would say, 1968 and today, uh, there's a deliberate intention to keep uh, Americans dumb, to to dumb us down and to keep us dumb. And you get it from all over the place. It's a very inundative thing that that's going on. You get it from the education system, from primary to secondary education. You get it in the music you listen to. You get it in the movies you watch. Uh, you get it in the news that you watch. It's very it's very inundative in that way. And there's policy constantly being pushed to justify and to create this new normal, uh, this new matrix that keeps everybody in this in this fog. I mean, you had the the passage of uh, Martin Luther King Day under the Reagan administration. Again, this is this this stuff is deep. Uh, Just I think uh, last week you had the House of Representatives pass the. Uh, slavery Remembrance Day. So there's there's this constant uh, reinforcement and re-upping of mm. this ideology. And so it, it, how do you break that spell? How do you how do you uh, uh, deconstruct 60 years of perpetual and consistent codification of lies and mistruths and revisionist history? Um, and the point is, uh, you know, Stalin said it best. He said, if I can steal your history, I can take your country. And so it's important with films like what we're doing, with podcasts like yours uh, and all of the other things that alpha males are doing across the country. It's important to really take back the narrative and go on the offense, because if we don't, then these people who want to destroy this country and destroy Christianity and destroy everything good, destroy masculinity, these people will continue to put their junk out there. And that junk, like if you have a, a cynical view of, of the patriarchy, if you have a cynical mm-hmm. view of America, if you have a cynical view of all things good, then you will be more and more susceptible to socialism, to communism, to Marxism, to all these things that will that is continue to deteriorate or perpetually deteriorating our country. I'm well, sorry I go on these long rants, but no, no, that that's perfect because you're landing on a lot of stuff that I want to go into because a lot of conservatives and a lot of Christians and a lot of Christian conservatives, they're so nice, Chad. They just, yeah. they'll let you push on them and they'll let you push and push and push until they, their backs against the wall. And then they'll push back just a little bit and say, don't do that. You don't want to see me if I get angry and all those types of things. And they're not willing to fight. And I say this all the time on my show. So I'm sure my audience is getting tired of it, but a lot right. of Christians and conservatives are going to wake up one day. The war will be over and they will have never put on their, 
their, you know, helmet, their, their breastplate. They would have never grabbed their sword. They would have never gotten into the fight because they never can quite find that hill that's worth dying on. They never can't quite find that time whenever they should push more chips to the center and do any of those different things. And a lot of it comes down to, uh, you know, basically the an undergirding theme of the entire film, which is whether or not we're going to worship at the altar of man or worship at the altar of God, because there are some notable additions to cast two uh, or part two of this film to the cast. And that's Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker. They've both been on the podcast before. They're fantastic. And then the one and only, like literally uh, of all the people on the planet, my favorite person to listen to talk about the gospel. And that is Vody Bauckham, just an yeah. absolute lion of a man. But the thing that I want to ask you about is this film it's not a Christian film per se, but it has overtly Christian and gospel-based uh, rhetoric and ideologies all throughout the film. And this film is doing what many conservative projects won't seem to do, and that is to be explicitly spiritual, not like woo-woo spiritual, but you know, Judeo-Christian spiritual, and to not hide behind the the vagaries of morality. And you know, we're but you're going to specifically discuss Christian morality and the gospel. So I guess. Why, why do that? Like, why add, you know, Daryl and Virgil and Vody to, to this film? Because obviously they were welcome for a guy like me. But couldn't you have just stayed on the conservative political sidelines and maybe snuck in a word or two about God, but don't talk about Jesus because that's starting to get real specific? You know, why, why go full bore into that? I mean, you can't Trojan horse Jesus. You know what I yep. mean? Like, uh, we, we can't be ashamed to say the name. You know, we have to we have to be bold and we have to stand on that foundation unapologetically in whatever walk of life we find ourselves. And the thing is, a lot of Christians, because we do live in a full-fledged postmodern age, uh, we feel that, like, the thing is, is, like, we've been, it's been beaten over our head time and again that, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to start with religion. You don't want to talk about religion. You want to kind of, like, ease Jesus in. I was just talking to a guy the other day who, uh, wants to be a musician. And he said, well, my goal is to become very popular in the music scene. And then when I get these interviews, I'm going to do a Kanye kind of thing where I talk about my faith unapologetically. And, you know, a lot of Christians believe that. And so the reason to answer your question, uh, we were uh, bold, is because you have to acknowledge that, you know, the obvious, the elephant in the room, so far as we see it, that when you look at Black America in particular, it thrived and it was at its best and brightest when it was unapologetically and overwhelmingly Christian. Right. Whenever you remove that, whenever you remove that cultural undergird, uh, I would say it wasn't so much removed as much as it was co-opted and subverted. Uh, whenever you subvert it and you, you, in a sense, begin to kind of insert bad ideology and bad theology what what ended up happening specifically to the black community is you saw this demoralization take place and you saw this this rapid decline and and the family and black entrepreneurship so on and so forth from the 60s to today and so again you have to acknowledge what was the cultural undergird uh du during the incline and what was the cultural undergird during the decline and mm -hmm. the the facts are obvious well, you, you get into that in the film, and I, I got to say, perhaps the most memorable part for me in the entire film was what happened right before the title screen. And so that was where Vody Bauckham, uh, well, I'll just read the quote here. He said this right before the title screen. 
Images are powerful. You look on churches, powerful images of saints and figures from the Bible, and the goal to communicate the meta narrative of Scripture who we are, why we're here, what's wrong with the world, and how can what is wrong be made right. Your worldview, your religion answers those questions. What we're seeing today is another religion communicating another meta narrative and another worldview that these murals are the stained glass windows of this new religion. So what Vodi is referring to there, Chad, obviously you know this, but is these murals that we see in a lot of these black communities, murals of George Floyd or of Breonna Taylor or of Michael Brown or of their favorite rapper who, you know, used to, or is currently still selling drugs or their favorite rapper, you know, Cardi B was mentioned uh, in the film by, by Brandon Tatum. Like she literally was a prostitute that used to drug men and steal their, their money and jewelry. And we have little girls in our culture that are looking up to these, these people that are not even close to being paragons of virtue. These aren't even moral people. These aren't people that are looking back on their past life and saying, yeah, I should have never done that. I, I, you know, I, I've distanced myself from that lifestyle. No, they're singing songs about it. They're selling records. So talk to me a little bit about that because man, that's probably one of the most sticky things, except for the very end of the film, which, you know, we'll get to, that's one of the most sticky things about the second one was the stained glass windows because these stained glass windows, these are mosaics, these beautiful, you know, colorful mosaics of these scriptural truths. But then in these black communities, it's we're putting people on pedestals that should have never been there to begin with. No, you're absolutely right. And, um, and I'm glad that part stuck out to you. Uh, so Vodi's uh, uh, monologue in that point is actually a response to a question that I asked. Well, more of a story and then a question. Um, so we went to Baltimore to shoot some of the footage for Uncle Tom too. The footage didn't actually end up making it. Maybe it will make an appearance someplace else. But I remember just walking through Baltimore and one of the things that I, I noticed in this this trash infected city or this part of the city that we were at at least is that everywhere you looked, you saw these beautifully painted murals of folks like Michael Brown and, and George Floyd and, and all these different um, people. And you saw these... Uh, you, you saw these acronyms like ACAB, which stands for all Co cops are bastards. You saw, um, you know, uh, uh, sayings like we need a revolution. You know, we need to overthrow the system and all these different murals painting these things. Um, and so or, 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 you know, presenting, you know, this kind of ideology, I should say. And I remember thinking to myself because I saw a lot of kids, you know, hanging out in the street corners and playing and doing all these things. And I remember thinking to myself. I can't imagine what it's like being a 12 year old black boy growing up in this environment, because everywhere you look, when you see a mural, it's a constant reminder that it's us versus them. Mm -hmm. It's me, a black person versus the cops. It's me, a black person versus America. It's me, a black person versus capitalism and the system. Uh, uh, that's the image that's embedded in your head from an early age when you grow up in places like this. So every time you see that mural, it's a reminder of who you are. And I asked Vodi, you know, what, what is this? And he said, it's kind of like the stained glass windows in a church. And, and, and the answer that he gave, he just nailed it. And that's obviously why it made it at the, at the front of the film. Um, but yes, it, it's, uh, blackness have become a religion. It has. After Martin Luther King died, that's when James Cone uh, wrote the book about, you know, black liberation theology. Mm. Um, blackness has become a religion and they are using the church 
to perpetuate this idea of blackness over God. Uh, there was a, uh, a woman, I forget her name, a black woman. She's a Republican. Um, she was being interviewed on The View. And it was when, uh, I forget the lady's name, uh, Sunny or something like that, who, who's a part of The View, the, the light-skinned black woman or Puerto Rican or whatever she is, I don't know. But she's she's the one who said, you know, black conservative is oxy is an oxymoron. Um, so a lot of people, a lot of conservatives uh, hopped on that video. They were uh, they were very distraught with Sonny for how dare you say that there's a lot of black Republicans and black conservatives. One of the things that stuck out to me, though, that a lot of people did not catch is that the black woman who's a Republican said, I'm a black woman before I'm a Republican. And so this this constant need, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, to insert your blackness, right. like you don't have to tell people you're black. People can see that you're a black person. I don't I don't I don't flaunt this idea that I'm a black conservative or I'm a black Republican. You can obviously see my skin color. That goes without saying I have conservative values and conservative values uh, are transcendent of of race. They just are the truth is not like nobody has a monopoly on truth. All truth is is God's truth. And so that's not exclusive to a specific ethnic group. Now, liberation theology will have you believe that it is. Liberation theology would have you believe that God is on the side of the, you know, of the poor. Mm-hmm. When in reality, no, God is on the side of God. And it's whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you know, God calls all of us to repent. And so... Uh, uh, what liberation theology teaches us, what social gospel teaches us, what many black churches unfortunately teach us is that blackness is everything. And so, and so to answer, uh, and, and I'll wrap it up right here, but to, to answer not only this question, but a previous question you asked about, um, uh, I forget exactly what, how you framed it, but basically, um, yeah, about the stupor, what do we need to wake up from? Mm-hmm. We need to wake up from blackness. We need to wake up from blackness because the thing is like what people think of when they think of blackness is they think of black culture, but they're not asking the question, who is the architect of so-called black culture? It's not genuine black folks. I can tell you that there, there's a, there's a much more sinister thing at play here. Well, let's go a lot deeper into the concept of blackness overall. So part of the thing, and you've said it uh, already, I've I've probably said it already in this interview, but we talk about the blank community. So the black community, the gay community, the whatever community. And I've always been fairly bothered by that. It's, it's an easy uh, tool to use a verbal tool because you're, you're, everyone knows what you mean, but it's like, that is not a homogenous group of people. Like Mm -hmm. they they don't all think the same way or do things the same way. They don't vote the same way. They don't eat the same way. Like, so when you talk about the black community, as if it's just this homogenous group of people that all do things the same way, I find that to be somewhat problematic. But I think that also goes back to this whole idea of blackness and owning your skin color. And I always find it to be odd when someone has pride over something that they themselves have not done. Like imagine me having pride in the fact that I have a red beard, right? Now I like my beard. I like, I like how it's placed on my face and how it looks. <laughs> but at the same time, imagine me starting a group where we're going to be identified by our red chin hair, right? Like that seems very odd to me, but we have these people, whether then they claim that, Hey, you're born gay or you're born trans or any of these things. And we should have pride in those things, but let's just go deeper on the blackness side of things because it's, if, 
every group can't do that, then it probably shouldn't be done at all. Because imagine me getting a group of people together at my house to celebrate our whiteness or to talk about our white capital W white identity. Obviously, that would not be accepted in any dominant culture, whether you're a part of the hegemonic United States or any of those types of things. But just go deeper. I know you got more to say on blackness. So go go whatever direction you want to. No, you're absolutely right. And this idea of uh, this community or that community, that's all Marxian talking points. I mean, isn't it funny how we begin as ordinary people who live in the world to adopt kind of unknowingly Marxist talking points or Marxist concepts and ways of thinking and ways of Because we're steeped in it. We're marinated in it. Absolutely. We are marinated in it. And the thing is, like, this is this is on purpose. Um, one of the people that we talk about in the film, his name is Eric Mann. Um, he's the father of Black Lives Matter. He's a white man. Um, he's a he's a Jewish white man. But um, he uh, he talked about in another video that we found of him, how important languages and definitions are to their cause, because if you can get people speaking your language it becomes a layup. It could be, it becomes a layup uh, uh, for you to win in these kind of cultural arguments that we have going on. Um, and, and this is where a lot of conservatives get it wrong. We insist on adopting their language. Um, and we think that we can use their language to, to beat them when in reality, no, we're, we're trying to, to fight uh, in the battle in a rigged game that they have set the rules uh, up for. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate because to some extent you do have to use their language. Otherwise, you know, the audience won't know what you're talking about. Um, but to this idea of, you know, you have the black community, the Asian community, the so, so on community, this community, like all of that is, is, is Marxian talking points because you need to create intersectional groups uh, uh, as and basically, frame those groups of, as being somehow oppressed or victimized by the hegemonic group or the, the mainstream uh, group, in, in this case, white America. Um, and this idea of there being a white America is also uh, very Marxian in its origins. I mean, when you look at our founding fathers and the country that they set forth, these were well-read men. Mm-hmm. They, they studied uh, uh, the Greek uh, empire, the Roman empire. They, they studied, um, history. They, they studied the Bible. Like they knew, uh, uh, about humanity and, and our inclinations and, and they knew about, um, concepts of, of free market enterprise and so on and so forth. They were also coming off the back of being like genuinely oppressed and overtaxed by the British government. And so, what they set forth was a very beautiful thing. It's something that the world has hasn't, you know, really experienced in terms of having a a a a new country whereby you're implementing these ideas that are are tried and true. And so what they were able to build in spite of its warts and bruises was a beautiful country that has created upward mobility for all people of all ethnic backgrounds. It's the very reason why we take in uh the most immigrants uh, compared to other countries, even to this very day. People understand that when they come here, they have opportunity for upward mobility. And so the fact that even though that's the case, you still have this insistence on, you know, identifying certain intersectional groups, that's on purpose. And the, per- and the point of that is, once again, to 
uh, use that as political fodder to get legislation passed, to keep people angry, to keep people at, at each other's throat, because to the extent that you have a common thing to uh, to uh, that that you believe, regardless of what your cultural background is, namely that as Americans, um, uh, we have opportunities that that you just can't get anywhere else in the world. Uh, so long as you as you're more divided than you are united, you're you're going to constantly be at each other's throat. You're going to always see your your neighbor as your enemy. When it's getting people to buy into their this narrative of their own inherent victimhood, but when you mm-hmm. go when you go beyond that, um, why are there so many people, black people from African and island nations, so desperate to come to this country? Like, don't they know? Haven't they gotten the news that they're going to be hunted by white police officers that are the modern day KKK? Like those those types of things. But one thing you talked about, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I do find it interesting, is how people on that side of the aisle, people that come from a little bit more of a Marxist, communist, humanist uh, point of view, they love playing with language. So we obviously see that in the LGBTQ space. Uh, We see that, especially with the T side of that, with just picking Mm -hmm. pronouns and just this nonsense of throwing out words as if words don't have an agreed upon meaning. We also see this in a more nefarious way with pedophiles. We can't call them pedophiles anymore. We have to call them minor attracted persons. And we have to call them persons because who knows what gender they're going to identify as this minute versus last minute. But the playing of language is going all the way down to the scholastic level because you have these school districts that are saying, we don't teach critical race theory in the schools. Here, look at our manual on diversity, equity, and inclusion and see if you can find the words critical race and theory next to one another. They're playing word games. Because yeah. most people aren't well-read enough on these issues to where they can't just notice, oh, that's what you're teaching here. They're playing with language. So talk about how important that is, because if you're going to buy into this narrative that you know this is white America, it's not made for black Americans, that black Americans can never get ahead, you've got to make sure you control the language as well. Yeah. So and excellent points that you just made. One of the things that they're teaching right now um, is something called SEL, which is social emotional learning. Right. It sounds so good. It sounds so, I I just talked about it on my show recently. You got it. Right, right. And there's another thing, trauma-informed learning, Mm -hmm. uh, equitable learning. Um, These are all uh, buzzwords that all mean the same thing. We want to turn your children into little Marxist advocates. Or if, if not an advocate, then at least somebody who is susceptible to the ideologies and the byproducts of of Marxism. Of, of Marxism. Mm-hmm. And so this is what's going on in our schools. Um, and it goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the inundation of it, the pervasivity of this ideology starting from, you know, the cradle. Um, and so I, the way I would put it as far as, you know, just trying to put it simply is to take it back to the scriptures, take it back to the Bible to test every spirit, because that's the thing. That's the way the enemy works. That's the way the devil works. That's the way. And and the thing is, like a lot of these people who are carrying out this ideology are working for Satan, whether they realize it or not. You know what I mean? Like the Bible says, do not be uh, uh, taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. It says in another place that we are to test every spirit. And so we can't be constantly, but, you know, uh, mesmerized by the dangling carrot of some acronym. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We can't constantly be be uh, 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 mesmerized by the flowery language of somebody who seems like they're on our side. But at the same time, we've seen examples of them being double minded in other places, you know. And so we're, we're I don't want to take this too far off track, but there was a book 
written by a man named Walter Lippmann. This one was written in 1922. It's called Public Opinion. In it, he talks about uh, the strategy one must go by if they desire to be a leader in a given society who has the influence and the capability to shift and move that society in the way in which they seek for it to go. And in it, he says, what you must do from the very beginning is get on a, a platform and begin to use familiar language that the general public can get behind. Use symbols of patriotism, use religious symbols, use you know uh, uh, symbols that people are familiar with, that people can cope with, that people can get behind, and be very good at conveying that th those symbols in a in a very attractive way. He says, once you get into the to the uh, to people's good graces, once you get into their their trust, you are then able to launch a campaign uh, that the people will naturally get behind. Not because they have vetted that campaign, but because they trust you. Mm -hmm. Because they uh, associate you with that familiar language that you use from the very beginning. It doesn't matter that that campaign is completely antithetical to the symbols that you use in the beginning. You must you must use these you must use those symbols as a as a kind of premise or a primer to do what you actually want to do. This is true of people like Martin Luther King. This is true of people like John Dewey. This is true of the people who are now pushing. Uh, a lot of these these programs in our school systems and in journalism that seem uh, at surface level, that seem at first to be something that, you know, we can get behind because they're using very romantic, attractive language. But if you pull back the layers and if you do as the Bible says, which is to test the spirit, you will find that it leads to death and not to life. And so it's incumbent upon us as Christian and as men, like we have to be men. We have to be men. If we're not being men, if we leave our post at the gates where we're supposed to be on our guard and we allow our children and our wives to be mesmerized by the dangling carrot, we will lose our country, we'll lose our society. And that's exactly where we are now. We, have, we, we, can't, we can't be the dog that looks at the squirrel and goes where the squirrel is going. We have to be on our guard and we have to use, we have to love the Lord our God with all of our mind too. And loving the Lord your God with all your mind uh, means not being so easily duped by these hollow and deceptive philosophies. Chad, you brought something up that literally I was reading last night before I went to bed. I'm reading a book. Uh, it's called, okay, Christianity and Wokeness by Owen. And I never know how to say his last name. Owen Strachan, uh, Strachan, <laughs> whatever. Um, he, he wrote something and it, it literally shifted something in my brain. And you kind of alluded to it there as well. As men, we look at original sin and we look at as Adam, as at the very best, he was passive right? He kind of watched Eve as she took the bite of the apple. But it goes way deeper than that. We were supposed to protect Eve from the yeah. apple. We yeah. were supposed to keep that from her, right? And we abdicated that. I say that we as kind of a humankind, we abdicated that responsibility. So I don't want to go too, too far off the rabbit hole because I want to come back to some of the points you were making about Marxism and communism. But talk to me a little bit about, about manhood and we'll go specifically within, within the church because the whole reason why Undaunted Life is here today is because as I was learning to become a Christian, 
as a teenager, I was also learning to become a man. And I saw those things as divergent. I saw those things as oil and water. The men were outside the church doing man stuff. And the, the, the godly people were inside the church, you know, going to prayer meetings and tucking their shirts into their khakis. And like, that was kind of who they were. And there was right. never this overall concept of like, okay, this is what men should do. Like, yes, testosterone's a big deal. You should use it. Like we want your, your great gifts that God gave you and we can use them here in the church. Most modern day churches, by any stretch of the imagination, they might as well have a blinking neon sign that says, we didn't make this for you. We don't have a place for you, man. And the thing about men, and you know this to be true, is if we look at a game and there's no chance of us winning, we're not interested in playing. We will mm-hmm. go somewhere else where we can feel needed and wanted. Mm-hmm. That could be into the arms of another woman. It could be into the garage. It could be into this project. It can be into the golf course. It could be into the shooting range. We will go somewhere where we can feel competent and powerful. And the modern mm-hmm. day church is turning away men from that concept because what they should be saying is we need the manliest men possible inside these walls because the manliest man of all time just so happened to be a Middle Eastern Jew that died at the age of 33 on a Roman cross at the behest of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And we need more men like that. So before I start going off on a rant and getting us way out into into left field, (laughs) hop in here. No, yeah. So uh, Yuri Bezmanov, who we talk about in the film, who was a former KGB agent, and he talks about subversion of culture and of societies and of countries. Uh, he, He says that the name of the game is demoralization. Uh, we need to demoralize you. Um, and he he says that in the 60s, that's whenever they were able to really push this demoralization that was going on. You know, we like to today look at the people who are railing against rock and roll, like the old, you know, uh, uh, the old quacks who are ro- railing against rock and roll and the over-sexualization in movies and so on and so forth in the 60s as being, you know, uh, uh, kind of antiquated in their way of thinking. Uh, but if you go back and li- listen to what a lot of these men were saying in that time, the adult generation in the 60s, they were really onto something. They were really sounding the alarm that was being drowned out by second wave feminism, by the civil rights movement, by a lot of these uh, student revolutions that were going on on college campuses where they were taking the ranks or uh, they were taking the ranks from the professors and the the college administration who were already far gone. Um, The students were. Uh, And what does Jesus tell us about the student being more superior to the teacher? You know what I'm saying? And so Mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff was going on. And so what they were able to do with the gay liberation movement, with feminism, with music, television, so on and so forth, is really kind of fast track this demoralization that has taken place in our culture. We talk about men, but men must be trained. They must be trained. Right. And so when they, when you make it cool in the 60s and the 70s for boys to rebel against their fathers, you make it cool for them to rebel against their fathers. Uh, you're pushing things like Mad Magazine and all these things that are making fun of the adult generation of that time. This created a kind of trend that has persisted to this very day. Once you get to the 90s, you see... Uh, 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 the show, like shows like, you know, married with children and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth that, that kind of depicts the father as being this couch potato, uh, you know, uh, being made fun of by his wife, being disrespected by his children and so on and so forth. You get into, you know, the early two thousands with shows like modern family and all these different mm-hmm. things. And I use entertainment because we get, unfortunately in the West, we get all, we, we glean a lot of our ideology 
and our way of reasoning and thinking from entertainment. And so that's why I'm referring to these television shows. And so um, we have allowed our boys to be more influenced by entertainment than by the lessons that we ought to be teaching them. You see, going all the way back uh, to whenever God delivered the Israelites out of the hand of Egypt, that we are to be intentional about what we teach our children, about what we embed in the minds of our children and how we lead our children. Just because you have a penis between your legs and you're 26 doesn't mean you're a man. Men must be trained. And we're not, we're not, as the generations go, as time marches on, if you weren't trained to be a man, if you were more influenced by culture than you are, or by your father and your grandfather, then you're going to impart what you learn to your sons. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Being a man and teaching manhood is an intentional thing that must go on in the home. And you have to ever be uh, uh, vigilant. You have to be ever vigilant against letting your children be enticed and be influenced and be indoctrinated by the culture. This is the reason why we made a conscious decision in my house to homeschool. Because in the same way that I want for my boys to be masculine men, I want for my girls to be feminine women, to be a, a helpmate to uh, to whoever uh, uh, they get to grace uh, with wifehood when they get older. Um, I, I want for them to be family-minded and family-oriented. Um, and, and, and I can't do that by carting them off to a public school and hoping for the best. It takes intentionality. Yeah, I've told people a lot. It's like vetted Christian school, and I do mean vetted or homeschool. Like that, those tend to be the only options. And everyone likes to kind of whistle past the graveyard and say, ah, it wasn't so bad. I grew up in public school. And it's like, were you talking about your gender on your first day of class? Because I was worried about having to change my color. And I don't mean my skin color. You know, the little color thing on the, yeah. you know, on the wall. Like if you did something bad, you had to change right. your color. And then if you did another thing bad, you had to I change your color. I was always on red, by the way. Oh, dude. Like uh, my, <laughs> my mom's first question to me when she would pick me up is, what was your color today? And she knew I couldn't lie. And I was, like, ah, yeah, it was red. You know, it was almost black. I almost got sent to the, the, the principal's <laughs> office, but we avoided that. But I, I do want to kind of come back to a point and then we'll get back into the film because I want to make sure we spend as much time talking about Uncle Tom too as possible. You talked about something and I'll just elucidate it further. There's no rites of passage anymore. We don't have that in a modern American culture. There are certain sects of certain religions that get into rites of passage where it's like, hey, you're a man now. Now, some of those things are just physical, right? Hey, we're going to put your hand in a glove full of, you know, bullet ants, or we're going to make you, you know, do some sort of crazy uh, physical thing, make you go out into the wilderness and kill a lion and bring their skull back or whatever. But it's learning those lessons of what manhood is along the way that most boys don't get. So as, as someone like Jordan Peterson would say is they're self-identifying or they're self-actualizing as a man, right? So mm -hmm. they get to choose first time I have sex, first time I got a job, first time I paid for my own vehicle, when I moved away to college, they get to pick. But when you pick your own manhood date, when you pick your own date that you became a manhood, uh, became a man rather, you don't have anybody that's been speaking into you because people mm -hmm. that are speaking into you are going to tell you, Hey, here are the things that you're awesome at. Here's how you're wired and here's how you're going to be able to do things easily in these areas. But also here's some potential pitfalls. Here's some areas that you're really going to struggle with that you're going to have to make sure you mature into. And a lot of it is teaching young boys how to be meek. And in our modern mm -hmm. parlance, we think of meek as this weakness, this kind of navel gazing slump shouldered idea, but meekness, you know, when you talk about a war horse to meek a war horse, you are making it to where they can use the totality of their power, but how it can be under the control 
of the rider, of the person riding that horse. The same thing is true. Like when you talk about Jesus, meek and mild, the meekness of Jesus was that he had tremendous amounts of power under the the scaffolding of the father and would only use it when the father would allow such things. So I'm going to get off my high horse and get off of my sermon because I'm going to get back into something that you, you talked about several times already in the interview is the susceptibility of humans to these ideas of utopia, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's the dictates of, of a Karl Marx or, you know, the ideologies of communism or secular humanism or any of those types of things. We want the creation without the creator. We're so desperate right. to have these things. Why is that so enticing for us? Why would people much rather spin themselves into all these different uh, mental hoops to talk about the multiverse and talk about, you know, Big Bang and how we used to be goo and then we became fish and then we became chimps and now we're us? Like, why would they go through all those mental gymnastics as opposed to just acknowledging the father? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, we saw the same thing in Genesis with the Tower of Babel. Um, We wanted to build this great utopia and we wanted to make ourselves uh, kind of the point. You know, mm-hmm. we wanted to make ourselves uh, the focus and we wanted to, to build the city that paid homage to us apart from God. Um, and so we've been trying that ever since. And Karl Marx's uh, uh, Communist Manifesto, uh, he was able to articulate it in a way that the uh, intellectual class was able to get behind. It made its way into America. It was taught in our Ivy League schools. Uh, these people were able to, uh, to to be indoctrinated and educated with this ideology, and they were, were able to, from there, disperse themselves into the culture and, and, and fields of journalism and fields of entertainment and fields of, of corporate America and fields of education and fields of, you know, you name it. And so they're able to, in a sense, gradually shift uh, the uh, cultural undergird uh, and to ring in this kind of postmodern uh, uh, reality that we all live in, where men are scared to be men, Christians are scared to be Christians, women are scared to be women, uh, so on and so forth. And so, um, and so, yes, uh, the 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 thing is, is like, as Christians, we have really found the jewel or the pearl in the field, and we long for the day where we can be in paradise with our God. We long mm-hmm. for that. And we have to understand that uh, we are to be in the world, but not of it. And because many of us haven't figured that out and we see suffering on a day-to-day basis and you are constantly being bombarded with politicians and with the influencers who are carrying the water for politicians and for and, and the politicians who are carrying the water for the global elites, uh, uh, they are painting this picture. And they spend a lot of time and money in painting this picture that tells you as an ordinary person that they can build heaven on earth. They don't call it heaven on earth, but they're telling you about the manifestations of what will happen if you go their way. If you allow us to uh, to take the reins of the climate, you know what I mean? Don't you want clean energy? Don't you want right. electric cars? Don't you want you know, people to not have to be displaced due to flooding and so on and so forth, go our way and we'll, we'll give that to you. Um, we tell you on the one hand that you need to go to college because you can't be successful unless you go to college. We don't tell you uh, that it's important to be intentional and be critical about how does college actually act as a thing that I can utilize for success 
will the job that I land, how, first of all, is there a job guaranteed for me after I get this degree? And will what that degree, will uh, this job uh, uh, earn me enough money to pay back what I spent on college? Like we don't, we're not asking those questions. We're not thinking critically. We're just saying, no, go to college, you know, take whatever, you know, get whatever degree you, you, you want. And then we say on the back end of that, the government will pay for your student loans and all these different things. And so all, all the things that we're pushing, we're trying to get you addicted to government. We're, we're trying to make you think that government is God. And this is one of the things that we talk about in, in Uncle Tom, too. Uh, Barack Obama is a huge crusader, or huge crusader for, for this ideology, for this mentality. Um, this goes back to the early 90s. And a lot of us just missed it, just went over our heads. Of course, he wasn't popular then as he is now. But uh, when you look at at, at Barack Obama, I'll, just to give you an example that that people might be familiar with, in 2012, when he was running against Mitt Romney, who is an abysmal candidate in the first place. I mean, there really, I didn't really have a dog in that race one way or the other. But when you look at, um, and that's just my opinion. It's not the opinion of my my opinion. All these are my my opinions. So when you look at the 2012 campaign, Barack Obama. Uh, his team put out this ad on social media. It was a, it was a bunch of slides, and they called it the life of Julia. And each slide was represented a different age of this fictional character, Julia. At age three, Julia, uh, under the Barack Obama administration, was able to go to Head Start, which is a government program. And 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 at age six, she was helped in this way by a government program. And age 12, she was helped in this way by a government program. And so from cradle literally to grave, uh, these slides demonstrate how a government program assisted her every step of the way. Uh, and to me, that's a very cringy thing because it's like, like you're saying in these ads that this person's success, this person's uh, uh, livelihood and their dignity is wrapped up in what the government can do for you and what the state uh, can do for you. Um, just a few months ago, Barack Obama, who has a film company, apparently, who has some kind of stake in Netflix, uh, released a, a documentary called The G Word. Actually, it's a series of, of documentaries called The G Word, the G standing for government. Hmm. And the whole point of this documentary, it's on Netflix, anybody can watch it is to talk about how great the government is and how we need the government and how the government is is important in every aspect of life and how we need to expand government programs. This is a gradual means of building a utopia. And they're not going to come out and tell you what their intentions are. They're going to slow play it. They're going to use, uh, as I said earlier, familiar sounding language. They're going to use uh, the dangling carrot to constantly make you think that Utopia can be accomplished by men. And a lot of Christians are vulnerable to this because we, we lack understanding. My people suffer for lack of knowledge. We lack knowledge. We're not writing these things on our doorposts. We're not teaching them to our children. We're not praying about them. We're not being intentional about our faith. We think that because we grew up in a Christian home that we're Christians and we're good. You know, we're squared away with God. We don't need to think about it anymore. But no, we have to be intentional because it's not about it's not about creating a Christian national estate that's awaiting us in paradise. God already created that. The idea is that we uh, 
we have changed hearts. Only the Holy Spirit, only God can change our hearts and cause us and, and compel us to live for him and not be constantly tricked and, and, and moved to and fro by whatever ideology is hot in a given day. Chad, let's talk about Christian nationalism because you said it, I didn't. So now we get to talk <laughs> about it more. So here's the interesting thing. And this came up again with the student loan uh, debate and you know whether or not we should pay it off, whether Christians should support it or not support it and all that. And you have Christians and non-Christians alike comparing this to the year of Jubilee and comparing it to you know the, the actual uh, payment of sin, the atonement for sin on the cross by Christ and his blood. Just an astonishing thing. But the thing I find interesting, so let's let's try to you know nail down into this. I would be accused of Christian nationalism if I say anything to do with scripture in terms of how I would argue against abortion, right? You know, I, if I were to say something along the lines of every human being, even the ones in the womb, have the Imago Dei, the image of God written on them, and they are worthy of our protection. It's like, oh, Christian nationalist, this guy, we got to get him out of here. He's this Christian zealot. And a lot of Christians have bought into that. And so they only want to argue against abortion by using scientific means, which God's in control of science as well. So yeah, eat your heart out. Like, uh, you know, if you're going to be secular about it, but talk about this whole idea that the moment you bring scripture into your political argument, you become a Christian nationalist. Because again, I'm hearing non-Christians, non-believers this week, preaching scripture ish at me about why I should support the forgiveness of these student loans or else I'm not loving people. Yeah. They're, they're, what they're doing, it, it, I would say, is blasphemy. Some Christians might not agree with that, and that's that's fine. But it's like, you know, I, I would say that is, that is blasphemy. This whole idea of not relying on your faith or the scriptures to inform uh, your opinions of how you engage in the public square or in, you know, uh, uh, conversations having to do with civics uh, is, is completely and utterly asinine uh, to me. Uh, because the thing is, like everybody else allows their ideology and their religion to inform their opinions. And so why is it that Christians are the only people who are told that it's wrong to do that? And to the extent that they do do that, other so-called Christians come along and try to berate them for it. Uh, I, I genuinely, I mean, again, I'm going to speak for myself. I genuinely question uh, the authenticity of somebody who would do that. Uh, because the thing is, and the reason I do is because, again, doing the research for Uncle Tom too, and delving into the the tactics that communists have used, uh, they legitimately had individuals who were atheists, who were deeply communist, who understood scripture, who understood the Bible, and who uh, went to seminary and became pastors, knowing all along that they weren't believers, but were using that post to shift the ideology of the church. This is a very real thing. We don't believe that that's, we, we think it's inconceivable that something like that will, can happen. We think it's unfathomable that something like that can happen, uh, but it's a very real thing that has taken place and we have the documentation to prove it. Uh, and so I'm always skeptical of somebody who is willing to twist scripture to push some kind of Marxian ideology or Marxian beliefs I'm not going to, you know, come out and call them a communist, but um, the fact of the matter is, let let God be true and let man, you know, be a lie. And the thing is, is like, um, there's another point that I wanted to make that goes back to what you were saying. Um, I, I forget what it was, uh, but yeah, this whole this whole idea of 
you know, you, you ought to be uh, quiet when it comes to, or, or you ought to not use, you know, your, your faith or use Christianity or use scripture to support your point. Um, I, it's sad to me that a lot of, a lot of so-called Christians believe that it, it just, I just don't know what else to say about that, you know? No, that makes a lot of sense. And you're making a lot of points that really lean to some of the other themes inside of Uncle Tom, too. And you, you mentioned documentation there. Like, do you have the goods, right? Do you have the actual documentation for why you're believing in a certain way? But a lot of it goes back to whether or not this can be grounded in truth. And that's why one of the most compelling things about the second film was when you talked about the Tulsa race riots, which have now been renamed and rebranded as the Tulsa race massacre. And, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma, right? And so this is kind of a close a home thing for me, but I didn't really grow up knowing too much about it. I don't remember us being taught it in schools, but if we did know anything about it, it was, hey, there was this group of white people that were super racist and they super hated black people that had any level of success. And so they did everything they can to, to stomp that out. And then from there forward, black people specifically in Tulsa, but even in the greater Midwest, Southwest area couldn't be successful because of what these evil white men did back in 1921. But as with most things, when you start peeling the layers of the onion back, it gets way more complicated than that. And so thinking about the documentation in the film, you show this guy that was inadvertently showing the, the resilience of the black community, as it were in the Tulsa area in the early twenties, because mm -hmm. within years of the race riots, that whole area of Tulsa was built back. And so that causes you to think, well, wait a minute. I was told that that was like the, the, the point where black people were going to be held down forever, right? So they would never be able to get past this point because their entire lives have been stamped out. And so again, guys, we can't go into everything that's going to be in the documentary because you guys have to go check it out for yourselves. It will be in the show notes, buy the DVD, stream it, do both, give one to a friend. I don't give a crap, but let's talk a little bit about the Tulsa race rights. One, why did y'all decide to put that in the second film? Where did you see the fit there? But then specifically give us maybe a spark notes version of what maybe it really went down in the aftermath of the riots. Yeah, for sure. And of course, I wanted to go deeper on that uh, story. But that could have been um, its own, you know, 20 part documentary. So right, it's like you can yeah. only talk about it so much. Yeah. And, and of course, I'm not a filmmaker. Um, Justin is. And so I think Justin made the right call um, because you can only talk about so much in, in you know, two hours. And so. Yeah, when it comes to the Tulsa riot, the 1921 riot, there was an issue on an elevator with a guy named Dick Rowland. Um, he was accused of having touched or assaulted a 16-year-old white girl. So he was arrested and taken to uh, the sheriff's office. Um, there was an article that was written by a man named Richard Lloyd Jones and his uh, newspaper called the Tulsa Tribune. And the title of that newspaper article was Nab Negro for Raping White Girl. And so that, of course, got some people upset. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a mob of men marched down to the jailhouse and they demanded the release of Dick Rowland. And the sheriff, being a man of integrity, said, no, he's in our custody. He's going to stand trial because that's the way we do things. Um, conversely, there was a mob of black men who also showed up to the jailhouse. There was an article written in the black newspaper by a man named A.J. Smitherman. Now, as it turns out, A.J. Smitherman was a member of the NAACP. He was a part of this organization who Manning Johnson, who we referenced in the film, said that 
you know, the NAACP went out of their way to create race issues. And that was very well going on in the 1920s. Uh, And the white guy who wrote for Tulsa Tribune was also uh, heavily involved, he and his wife, in many so-called progressive causes. He was a part of the the Unitarian Church uh, as well, which was a meeting place uh, for communist agitators in that time. And so you ask yourself, why is it that uh, this this white progressive newspaper uh, editor is writing articles meant to entice racial friction between white and black? Why 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 would a communist be interested in that? Sounds familiar. Sounds very familiar. Uh, the whole idea is that communists seek to exploit uh, whatever friction they can. Um, they want for there to be chaos. They want for there to be division. And this goes back to to one of the points I wanted to make earlier that I forgot uh, about, you know, because um, because you were asking, you know, why is it that people are so susceptible uh, to Marxist, you know, the Marxist uh, uh, desire for a utopia on Earth? Um, um, and the, the, the answer to that question is, is a lot of us think it's inconceivable or unfathomable that somebody who is using familiar Christian-esque language mm-hmm. uh, is doing so to push this Marxist agenda. Uh, as if Marxists don't know scripture. We see Satan himself quoting scripture when he was trying to tempt Jesus. You have Raphael uh, Warnock on the campaign trail, you know, mm-hmm. saying things that are very similar, and he comes from a very particular worldview. Exactly, exactly. So I, I, I highly encourage people to go back and look at, in the scriptures, the way that Satan tried to tempt Jesus. Um, he would use scripture to do so, and he would try to flip it and manipulate it in such a way to justify what it was he was trying to push. And mm-hmm. so, uh, and so, in, if, if the father of lies uh, is using that as a tactic, as something in his arsenal, uh, wouldn't those who are the children of Satan today mm-hmm. be willing to do the same thing? And Even so, don't if they pretend. don't know it, they could exactly. be a useful idiot in this whole thing. Right. Precisely. And so uh, and so, yeah, that that, in my opinion, is the reason why a lot of Christians, uh, uh, they follow uh, people who tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And these people, uh, these so-called leaders are gifted at at twisting, manipulating uh, uh, scripture to try to justify something that's just unjustifiable. So that so to get back to this. The reason why the reason why communists and and so-called socialists and progressives, the reason why they they want for there to be friction, the reason why they insist on division and and, and identity politics and finding these uh, these these points or these areas where they can kind of exploit and exacerbate and and make kind of a, a divisive uh, thing, is it, it gives them a kind of in. It gives them the. Uh, the ability to kind of assume the position of having the moral high ground, of having an answer, of having a plan and regimen in order and in, in making things uh, better. And so you want to kind of create racial friction in 1921 uh, because if you can keep blacks and whites at each other's throats, you can come in with a plan to to make things better. But it didn't work in Tulsa. Uh, uh, the, the thing about it is you had black people who not only had their faith, but they also had businesses. They had integrity. Um, and you can't 
to get get these blacks to depend on you, to depend on the NAACP, to depend on your program or whatever it is you're trying to push, because they knew they had a taste of what it's like to do for self. Right. And they didn't want to give that up. And so because they didn't want to give that up, they built it back. And not only did they build it back, they did so with the help of white people. There were white people who were helping to build it back. And so this idea that, you know, black generational wealth and black success ended in 1921 with the massacre is just completely untrue. And not only that, it was built back before 1925. We just happened to have footage of 1925, uh, but it dates back earlier to that. They got back to work immediately. It wasn't 300 people who died. It was a couple dozen of both blacks and whites who died because it was a large brawl. That's what it was. It wasn't a massacre. It was a brawl. There's so many places I can go with it, but you're absolutely right. There's so much with Tulsa race rights, like that could be its own, uh, you know, future film. I, I guess if you want to say it in in terms of that. And so to kind of put a bow on, on Uncle Tom too, uh, before we before we get you out of here. We know there's going to be more of these. I know uh, that we're at least going to have a part three because at the very end of the film, uh, of the second film, you not so subtly let us know that part three is coming. So I guess you give me an idea of what does the the future of the franchise uh, look like? Like, is it just going to be three films? Is it going to extend out? Is there going to be, you know, uh, more episodic docuseries type things? And I don't want to ruin the end of the film for anybody. But I will say the very last line of the film, as soon as it cut out, I go... <gasps> Like I literally gasped like a, like a little kid, like, oh my gosh, like you were kind of scared because, and again, I don't want to ruin it for anybody. So if anyone's going to ruin it, it's going to be you, Chad, but you mentioned the the phrase or, or the words sacred cow very yeah. early in this interview. And you guys are seemingly planning in the third film to go after the sacred cow in Americanism right? Mm, there is yeah. no figure that is above this figure in terms of our, you know, cultural zeitgeist, if it will. So you can kind of ease your way out of it. You don't have to necessarily give it away, but just tell me what, what the future of this franchise looks like of Uncle Tom. Well, it is my hope that, uh, well, the cat's out of the bag. There, there will be a part three. Uh, it is my hope that part three is the finale. Um, I wanted so earlier in the project, uh, I had ideas of there being a part three, because like, as I mentioned, we were in Baltimore. And as you walk around Baltimore, you see all of these uh, abandoned brownstone buildings that were boarded up and so on and so forth. And of course, me as a uh, as a as a contractor business owner here in, in Texas, I'm always looking for opportunities. And so seeing these boarded up buildings on the one hand. And seeing all these able-bodied men doing absolutely nothing on the corners, on the other hand, to see those two things, I, of course, my ideas or ideas start brewing in my head. And I'm thinking to myself, it'll be cool to kind of bring some kind of like trade uh, program, not government funded, but completely private, privately funded uh, uh, trade institution uh, to Baltimore, where you're teaching these young men who are willing uh skills. We're teaching them plumbing, you're teaching them uh, electrical, carpentry, masonry, so on and so forth. And we can, in a sense, buy these brownstone buildings at a uh, at a low cost and completely renovate them and teach financial literacy to these young men uh, and their families 
to bring in people who uh, are well versed in money management and politics and culture, so on and so forth, to basically not only focus on teaching them skills, but also teaching them life skills, bring in pastors, so on and so forth, and begin to buy, you know, give them the opportunity to to buy these buildings for their families and completely renovate uh, Baltimore with uh, with with skills and not just with what the government has to offer. And I thought it would be cool to do a, a film where we document that process. And somebody asked me, well, what about when you run into red tape from the local leaders? And I said, that's the exact thing that we want to document. That's the exact thing we want to document is the red tape that you would run into. And not only that, somebody asked, well, what about the fact that there are some young men who won't be willing to join your program? That's another thing we want to document. Because what we want to show is not only... Do you have these people, these Democrats, these politicians who claim that they want uh, for things to be better in their city? Not only do you are you able to showcase them standing in the way of something that could legitimately help the people in their city. If people can see that, then you're exposing them in the light for all to see. And to the other extent that you have, you know, young black men who are complaining that the system is against us, the system is racist, we can't get ahead because of racism to show that they are rejecting the very thing that can help them legitimately for not just immediate success, but for long-term success. To document that also uh, gets people to stop believing this boy who cried wolf syndrome mm. uh, and begin to like move on and take care of and focus on themselves and their families and their churches and their communities instead of focusing on uh, the plight of black people that doesn't exist, or, or at least doesn't exist in the way that we're told that it exists. So. It's a it's a win win win. It's a win if people do go along with it, and we're able to move the needle and 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 create genuine traction in a place like Baltimore. It's a win if the government gets in the way of it because we can show people the government is not as 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 for you as they say they mm -hmm. are. And it's a win if the people reject it because it's a because we can show people that you know uh, people are just not willing to accept. Uh, 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 authentic help that actually teaches a man to fish that people would much rather just be fed. And, and it's good for people to see that. It's good for the church to see that. Right. Uh, most importantly. And so that's the idea that I had for part three. We, we asked that idea and where we're going with part three is exactly what you talked about uh, as far as how we leave part two. It's important to get into that subject matter because we're, we're exposing not only the sacred cow, but the ideology that the sacred cow bought into from a very early age. It wasn't something that this particular sacred, sacred cow uh, suddenly stumbled into in the last three years of said sacred cow's life. It was something that was, was planned and organized from the very beginning. Um, it's also important to look at the state of, of theology in America uh, going into the 70s after the after you know certain things happened, um, how there was a cultural shift uh, in the church and in the black community, and it's also important to look at the state of black community today in terms of what people believe about what blackness is. If you look at, for example, and and, and I'll make this point and, and leave it here. If you look at the av like a picture of the average black man who's in his twenties today. 
Um, and just look at how he's dressed. Uh, what you'll find is that they're dressed much like a middle schooler. And so I, 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 I my diagnosis of that, and of course I'm not a, a doctor or a medical professional, but a lot of black men unfortunately suffer from uh, arrested development. That is the inability or the, des the lacking the desire to grow up, lacking the desire to be a man and to take responsibility of looking at life as this kind of uh, party, um, always looking to, you know, lo looking at hustling as a means of getting ahead and not actually, you know, learning a skill and, and mastering that skill and, and making the most of it. Um, looking at women as objects to have sex with and instead of a, a woman to marry and to raise a family and, and, and children with. This is a very new phenomenon. And it happened, again, downstream of the demoralization phase that has happened in this country. Because comparatively, if you look at pictures of 20-something-year-old of, of, of year old black men from the 1940s, you can see just from the way that they're dressed, their posture, the way that they carry themselves, that these were men of integrity. These were men who, uh, who came from, from families that held them accountable and and place the onus of them to be responsible individuals and so this isn't just true in the black community so-called black there i go using that that um mm -hmm. terminology uh, again but this isn't just true of black people in america this is true at large it's just it just so happens that there's been a lot of scrutiny and focus on black people that that's what we that that's what we in this in this space of you know social sciences tend to look at and talk about uh, white people in this country um, come from various European backgrounds. It's, you know, white people make up over 60% of the population and there's so much diversity and there's such a, there's such a narrative put forth that, that because of privilege and because of all these things, um, it's just not worth it to, to, to break down kind of, uh, uh, the family, uh, 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 element, the familial elements, the the cultural elements of of white people, um, because there's there's more fodder and there's more uh, legislation to be pushed. There's more policy to be pushed when you focus on on brown and black and brown intersectional groups than there are when you focus on white people at large. Of course, when you do focus on white people at large, uh, you get into class uh, um, um, differences, which is really what. The Marxists want they want to focus on class, and that's and that's another interesting point too because it's like uh, you have a lot of so-called conservatives who say, "Oh, it's not about race; it's about it's about class." It's like, no, you're, you're not you're not making you're not helping the conversation. Like you're you're still right. feeding into the Marxian playbook when you try to focus on on class. It's not it's not so much about class as much as it is about culture, in my opinion. And what are you teaching your kids? And what 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 are you breaking certain cycles uh, that have been handed down to you from you know, generations of old from your parents, whether it be habits of, you know, how we talk about and think about money, how we talk about and think about decency and, and drunkenness and so on and so forth. Are you, you know, being born again? Uh, to be born is to be born of natural parents who teach you natural lessons in a natural world. To be born again is to adopt, is to abandon that, to die to that, and to choose this day forward to uh, take heed to what God says, the author of the universe, the author of creation, the author of humanity. Um, um, uh, that's a decision that we all have to make, regardless of background, regardless of culture, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of whatever worldview that was instilled in us from a very early age. And so, yeah, uh, sorry about the long tangent, but um, 
but yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. No, that that's great. Like I love, <laughs> I actually like when you go on those tangents, cause it gives me a little bit of an idea as to some of the inroads that you're going to be making in your future projects. I'm so excited for you guys and the, the work that you produce up to this point, but just knowing some of the things behind the scenes after talking with you and Justin about some of the things that are to come, I think it's very interesting. And I'm, I'm actually appreciative that you left off the name of the uh, sacred cow, because guys, you've got to go check out the film. It's called uncle Tom Two. It'll be in the show notes. It is well worth your time and it is appropriate to watch, you know, with your high schooler. Um, there's, some different depictions of Marxist violence in there. So some of you guys are, are going to be familiar with some of those things, but it, it's something that, the, that if we're going to start working to push back on the darkness that's coming in culture and some of the pervasive ideologies that are even coming through the classrooms, this is one of the ways that you can do it. But Chad, I'm not going to let you off the hook before I take you through the ringer here at the end. So I do a segment at the end of some of my interviews called, what would you say to someone that said, so this is lightning round. So what I'm going to say is what would you say to someone that said, I'm going to fill in the blank and you have 30 seconds to respond to each one of these. Okay. So oh, that's we can't, impossible. I know no, it's not impossible. <laughs> I will set a timer and I will yell at you if you don't do it right. You got 30 seconds, regardless of what I say. And then that's all you get. It's meat and potatoes, baby. So you up for it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Let's do this first one. Just ease in, see how it goes. What would you say to someone that said uncle Tom and uncle Tom two are racist films? Um, <laughs> I would say that in the films that we we demonstrate uh, good versus evil. And if you insist on making everything about race, then it just shows that you're unwilling to wake up from the stupor that we talk about in the film. One pitch, one home run. Let's keep this going. What would you say to someone that said Chad O. Jackson is a black white supremacist? <laughs> I wouldn't say anything to them. I, I mean, I don't need to say anything to them. I don't have anything to prove to them. I'll just keep it moving. That wouldn't dignify a response. I agree with you. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said reparations must be paid in order for black people to be equal to white people? Um, I would say that they lack uh, faith in the dignity of black people. They don't see black people as as being capable of operating in the real world. And so they must be, you know, pampered and, and taken care of. And so it says more about them than it does about uh, about black people. All right. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said black people need more money, not more Jesus talk? <laughs> uh, if you give black people more, mo more money, just as if you give any other, you know, so-called group more money, uh, that's actually going to make things a lot worse than, than it is better. Okay. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said we should all strive for equity? Uh, that you're peddling Marxist talking points. It's true. If you hear someone yeah. say equity, you should look at them a little bit askance. So we've got a yeah. few more left. What would you say to someone that said Marxism will work? It just hasn't been done right yet. <laughs> I hear it all the time, Chad. Do people really say that? They honestly say it. They believe it. They're typically on university campuses. But what would you say to these people? I mean, what do you say? Again, that doesn't dignify a response. But at the same time, it's like if, if that's what you're peddling, and you're you're influencing college students who will go out into the world and and and, and take leadership in corporations and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it just I don't know. I mean, I, I honestly don't know how to respond to that. 
Uh, you're talking to somebody that uh, either is the most optimistic person on planet Earth or they have no understanding of any of the atrocities of the 20th century. All right, yeah. a couple more left for you, Chad. What would you say to someone that said Black Lives Matter? Um, <laughs> I mean, as somebody who, who says Black Lives Matter, I mean, I guess I would just say that, you know, if, if Black Lives Matter, then what about, you know, you heard this before. What about the lives in the womb? What about you know, black fathers, what about, you know, all these black people who are killing each other? You know, this is more of a, this is more of a, a movement that, that is seeking to federalize the police than it is to really care about the lives of, of black people. Yeah. You always have to ask, are you talking about the organization, the ideology mm -hmm. or the sentence? Cause you're going to get right. three different answers. All right. Last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said Chad O. Jackson is an uncle Tom? <laughs> <laughs> you had to know it was coming. Um, again, that's something that doesn't dignify a response because if you knew who Uncle Tom was based on and you knew what Josiah Henson, who, who, the, who the book is based on, uh, did and who he was, they would, I don't know, again, that, that exposes more of that person's ignorance than it does uh, anything else. So. Absolutely. Well, Chad, I appreciate all your time today. I appreciate you going into all this detail. I took us off on a few different tangents, so we didn't get to talk about all the things about the film that I wanted to, but hopefully I left more meat on the bone. So guys are interested to check it out for themselves, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I just encourage people to watch Uncle Tom 2. It's available at UncleTom.com. Um, if you watch it and you like what you see, or if you think that other people should watch this movie, I encourage you and I implore you really to leave a review on our IMDB page because uh, we desperately want this message to get, get out because we think it has a potential uh, to, to turn things for the better. Review it and share it guys. It will be in the show notes. Chad O. Jackson, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Chad O. Jackson. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you today is a link to where you can go watch and or order or buy your copy of Uncle Tom 2. Guys, you can stream it right now. It is well worth your time. Watch it with your high schoolers. Watch it with your wife. Like, it's a great time. Uh, I mean, it's a heavy, heady documentary, but man, it's sticky and it's really, really good information. You've got to take it in. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to undaunted.life. That's www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah <laughs>